Welcome to the Out of Limits Minute Truth Radio Show. Outoflimitsradio.com. I'm your host, Ryan. Tonight is a special event. We have someone on our program who I have so much respect for. You'll hear all about it in the introduction, but this person is very unique. I consider this individual to be one of our greatest intellectuals. People on the show sometimes will say, hey, you know, well, I like that question, or they'll talk about the types of questions I ask. Well, a lot of the questions come from the authors that I read and their thought process. And this individual has had a substantial impact on my thought process. And I believe that he is the Paul Revere of our time in so many different ways. He offers a lot of great arguments. I implore you to read his books because not only are you going to find or have a new grasp on how the world works, but your thought process is going to change. And I think that your vocabulary is going to change because of this gentleman's work. Let us begin tonight's program. Joining us now is Chris Hedges, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, and he's a New York Times best-selling author. He's written 12 books, and his latest book is called America, the Farewell Tour. And before we begin this interview, I just want to bring to your attention that Mr. Hedges is somebody who I have the utmost, deepest respect for. And Chris, I just want to tell you, Thank you so much for all the sacrifices that you have made, for all the writings that you have done, for all the criticism you have taken in order to bring the truth out and for fighting for our freedom. It is not only a great honor to have you on our show today, but it is a great honor to be able to tell you these words and know that you are hearing them. So, Mr. Hedges, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you. Thank you. Okay. Chris, your latest book. America, the farewell tour. I remember reading one of your articles saying that America is a failed state. Why is America a failed state? And how would you compare America's collapse to other countries that have collapsed previously? It's a, it's a failed democracy um, and increasingly is a failed state uh, because we've undergone a corporate coup d'etat in slow motion. All of the institutions and mechanisms by which piecemeal and incremental reform were once possible have been seized by corporate power to render the citizen impotent. It doesn't matter what our rights are. I mean, you can privacy, uh, the right uh, to uh, due process. Uh, it's all been taken from us. Um, it doesn't matter what we, uh, what we want as a population. Um, the lobbyists on K Street uh, write the legislation. This whole Supreme Court process is ex exhibit A about how fixed um, and dishonest the system has become. Uh, and uh, these, this distortion of our society has uh, in the hands of our corporate oligarchic elites, seen the largest transference of wealth upwards in American history. And all the statistics are known to everyone. Um, and so you've left 70% of the country living in pretty severe distress. Um, and it's only getting worse through programs of austerity, through the tax cuts, which will remove an estimated $1.5 trillion from the federal budget over the next 10 years and increase taxes for the working class. Uh, the assaults on 
what programs we have left, Pell Grants, uh, the uh, funneling of what Marx would call fictitious capital or economists like Nomi Prince called fake money into the hands of banks after 2008. Uh, and what have they done with the money? They've used it to buy back their own stock because their compensation, the compensation packages of the senior management and the CEOs is tied to stock, uh, or they've hoarded it. Um, and it is borrowed money. They borrowed at virtually 0% interest rate. And so uh, since they don't make anything and since they don't hire anyone, uh, they impose this crippling debt peonage on the public, um, $32 trillion, I think, in personal debt, uh, $1.5 trillion in student debt. Uh, the New York Times ran a story last Sunday that said that the fracking industry was the next dot-com bubble because the investments are based on projected profit, not actual profit. In fact, the fracking industry is losing money. So uh, we're barreling towards another economic crisis. Uh, and this time around, the elites don't have a plan B. They can't lower interest rates any more than they've lowered them. And what I fear is that the distortions within our economic system, which is Carl Poyani once wrote that unfettered capitalism first creates a mafia economy and then a mafia political system, and I think that's what's happened, uh, will uh, unleash a very frightening kind of Christianized proto-fascism that seeks to blame the vulnerable as these kind of proto-fascists or fascist groups always do, as if 11 million undocumented Mexican workers who or, you know, Latino workers who make below the minimum wage are responsible for deindustrializing and destroying the country. So, um, uh, yeah, the, the, a tiny cabal has seized power, in this case uh, corporate. Um, you know, we've seen throughout history whether the, that cabal is monarchical or fascist or communist. When that happens, it redirects uh, all of the institutions that make an open society possible to enriching and consolidating the power of that cabal, and that's where we are. Okay, and you often talk about how these institutions that we've had in the U.S. that have protected the workers are constantly being stripped away, and I'm wondering, since the U.S. has had a central bank, since the, the fact that we ever had a central bank, which I believe was back in maybe as early as 1781, was that going to inevitably cause this to happen? I mean, once you have a central bank and the ability to print and coin the currency is out of the hands of the government, is that almost a death nail even years down the road that institutions will inevitably fail? Because how much power can you really have, no matter how strong the workers are, if the currency is out of the hands of the workers and the um, people? Right. I mean, that gets into the whole issue of, uh, uh, you know, which is an important issue. Uh, in terms of uh, uh, printing money. Uh, and that became a big issue in 2008 when the um, Fed uh, began to churn out uh, massive sums of uh, in, in essence fake money to bail out the financial institutions. 
And I think the University of Missouri just recently estimated that it I hadn't heard this figure before was ended up being something like twenty six trillion dollars or something. Well, the only reason that the Fed can get away with it is because the dollar is the world's reserve currency. That isn't going to last forever. We're already seeing I mean, Iran has already walked away from the dollar. We're already seeing, uh, and that's part of the hostility to Iran because they've switched to the euro. Uh, once the dollar's dropped as the world's reserve currency, its value will deflate instantly. We saw that when the pound sterling was dropped uh, in the 1950s as the world's reserve currency. Imports become phenomenally expensive. Nobody wants to buy your treasury bonds. Uh, your military uh, imperial machine uh, instantly uh, contracts because you can't afford it. Um, and and so we're playing a very dangerous game. Uh, I mean, there is a clause that allows the Fed in a moment of financial crisis to print money, but nothing uh, like on the scale that it has been printed. And so uh, in many ways, the uh, recovery of the economy, as any worker can tell you, has been a complete mirage, a complete fiction. Uh, and we measure the health of the economy by, for instance, the stock market, whereas the stock market, this fictitious capital, has just been used to, to buy back stock, or they've been lent this money at virtually 0% interest, and they buy treasury bonds, and they get interest from it. I mean, it's, it's just the, the corruption uh, within the system and the fraud within the system is so massive. We just saw uh, banks charged with fixing LIBOR rates. Um, and I think part of the problem is that after 2008, uh, by bailing out these huge corporations like Goldman Sachs, we uh, gave them even more power than they had before uh, on a global level. So, uh, you know, where we're headed uh, is really at its root uh, caused by the uh, severe uh, mismanagement of of the financial system. Um, I mean, you had central banks in Europe that were lending money at negative interest rates, i.e. they were paying Incredible. people to take money because it's all built – the whole economic system is fueled by debt peonage. That's why you know, they borrow the money at 0% and then you're late on your credit card and you're paying 28% um, because the money, the money has to be paid back. Um, and so since they don't make anything and they don't – you know they don't they don't manufacture anything um they have to extract it from a population that's already in severe economic distress it's why they make sure wages remain stagnant and in real terms decline it's why even if you have uh health insurance you're constantly getting hit with all these new copays new costs things they don't cover because they've got to, they've got to extract it out of you and when we have this collapse, how do you think the world is going to respond to America's collapse? And also, do you foresee the pain from this event being so great that it's going to force people to look within, to once again become intellectuals, regain the critical thinking? Or do you think it's going to drive them into the arms of bondage at lightning speed based on what you've observed about America, the culture today? Well, I think we're totally unprepared 
uh, one for what's coming. And the kind of popular movements that made democracy possible, um, the unions, uh, an unfettered press that wasn't corporate controlled, they're all gone. Um, academia's been sold to corporate power, and I know I teach at these schools. Um, so I fear that in a moment of instability, which of course another economic meltdown will cause, uh, because our civic discourse has been so impoverished, because we're unprepared, because we haven't in any real way discussed what's happening around us and why it's happening, there will be significant segments of the population uh, that will be easily propagandized to blame the collapse on the vulnerable, on undocumented workers, 11 million Mexican workers, on African Americans, on Muslims. Uh, uh, there, you know, the rhetoric of uh, out of the Trump White House already is, uh, I think. Uh, characterized correctly as incitements to violence that will become more pronounced when it happens. uh and and so my fear is that we're we're just not prepared either organizationally or intellectually to respond in a rational way to to what's going to happen i agree with you about that and i one of the books i love that you wrote was christian fascism and there's a poll that's come out that said a lot of people are leaving the Christian faith in droves. And I was wondering if you actually find this fact hopeful. Do you find the fact that more people leaving Christianity and other forms of organized religion means that they are less likely to be indoctrinated and be utilized by these institutions and other similar institutions as well as becoming radicalized? Right. Well, most of I, – I, 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 the book is called American Fascist, The Christian Right in the War in America, and I didn't use the word fascist lightly, I, and I speak as a seminarian. I grew up in the church. My father was a minister. I, I look at these people as sacralizing the worst aspects of American capitalism and imperialism, uh, deeply intolerant, um, and embracing the magical thinking that comes with uh, – believing in creationism and the rapture, which isn't in the Bible and everything else. So um, the, this is a powerful force, and we're already watching these Christian fascists fill the ideological void of the Trump administration. Trump himself has no ideology, of course, um, and that's why 81% of evangelicals voted for him, and I think in the last poll, 75% support Trump. Uh, so they have built um, – powerful systems of indoctrination through Christian broadcasting. They have built university systems to train their cadre, including Liberty University and Liberty Law School and Patrick Henry Law School and Oral Roberts. Uh, they've organized in a way that we on the left didn't. Uh, and uh, I think they're – I, I don't think they're a majority, but I think they're uh, an incredibly dangerous threat, especially given – the uh, the money uh, that the corporatists have put behind them. Uh, and Pence, of course, is a creation of this movement. And as Noam Chomsky correctly points out, um, you get rid of Trump and Pence is worse. Uh, 
uh, because at that point this ideological void is just filled by these by the Christian right. So, uh, you know, no totalitarian movement is ever a majority. Uh, the, the the Nazi Party I don't think ever pulled above forty percent, um, but they're they're organized, they're well funded, uh, they're ruthless, and uh, in a moment of distress they're ready to take power. And I, and I I look at that book as I wrote it in 2006 as being uh, amazingly prescient in terms of uh, capturing the the base uh, and they, they were building and the structures they were building in order to assume power. And, and um, they, they uh, in a moment of financial collapse, they may very swiftly uh, fill that void. Jeez, it's it's awful to think about, and I want to bring our audience's attention that in 2012, you filed a lawsuit against the Obama administration challenging the National Defense Authorization Act based on the aspect that part of it allows um, it to detain people indefinitely. First off, I want to thank you so much for doing that. I mean, talk about people that are fighting for your freedom. You're on the forefront fighting for our freedom so we don't have to be detained indefinitely in the quote-unquote land of the free so thank you for doing that. And I'm wondering, from your perspective, we see a lot of celebrities that come out and they'll rally against Trump or immigration and they'll say, you know, he's, he's terrible for doing this and that. But does it make you upset and angry when these celebrities weren't making a peep when the National Defense Authorization Act was passed, when the Patriot Act was passed, when other big forms of our civil liberties were being passed? Could these celebrities have done a tremendous amount of good by raising awareness about this instead of just going with whatever the flavor of the moment is? Well, yeah, or when Snowden revealed that we're the most spied-upon, eavesdropped, <laughs> monitored population in human history. Um, well, the, these celebrities are about burnishing their own image and promoting their manufactured celebrity personalities. Uh, there, there's very little uh, that's that's moral about what they do. It's a calculated morality, so I'm not surprised. Um, suing Obama because Obama was popular in celebrity circles uh, was not going to get celebrity support, um, but it was essential because it overturned the Section 1021 of the National Defense Authorization Act overturned the 1878 Posse Comitatus Act, which had prohibited the military from acting as a domestic police force. And we actually won in the Southern District Court of New York, and then the Obama administration uh, frantically sent up lawyers from the National Security Agency and went to the appellate court and asked that the temporary injunction, which invalidated uh, Section 1021 be lifted in the name of national security, and unfortunately, the appellate court did it. Um, Judge Catherine B. Forrest, who did the ruling, refused to do it to her credit. And it was interesting. It was a, it be, because I was challenging Obama. Uh, it, it received almost no coverage on MSNBC, the purported liberal network, uh, and as you correctly point out, among uh, you know celebrity public officials. Um, and uh, to its credit, my old paper, the New York Times, sent a reporter to cover the case and then wrote an editorial praising the decision because uh, at least they understood its import. Um, but, yeah, it was, it was kind of remarkable that it was blanked out from the media landscape 
um, because, of course, it had bipartisan support. Uh, and during the two years that we challenged uh, both the appellate ruling and we filed a petition or cert to the Supreme Court, during that two-year period, the lawyers, Bruce Afron and Carl Mayer, went to the Democratic leadership in the House, because they have to renew it every year, and said, look, all you have to do is insert into the section that it doesn't apply to American citizens, and we dropped the lawsuit. Uh, and, of course, they weren't going to do that because it, it was designed for American citizens. And what it really, at its gut level, permits legally is for the military to take to the streets in a moment of unrest in American cities, seize American citizens, extraordinary rendition, and hold them in uh, military detention centers without access to due process. I mean, in, in, uh, they can't meet a lawyer. And so, in essence, they're disappeared. And, and uh, Judge Forrest, in her opinion, which is worth reading, uh, likens this to the detainment of the 110,000 Japanese Americans during World War II and correctly points out that this allows the government to criminalize an entire group of people. So it's an extremely important erosion uh, of our basic constitutional rights, uh, but was done um, almost in the dark. Yeah, it was done on December 31st, I think it was 2011. I'll never forget, I was in a, I was in a place celebrating, and I watched the news, and I saw that they passed it, and they did it. It's so sneaky how these things happen. Chris, something that maybe some people don't know about you is that you went to boarding school with some of these elites, and you got to know how they uh, were a firsthand experience. So I was wondering, from your perspective, what do you think are some of the weaker points of the elites that currently rule us? Is there anything that the common person can do to undermine the agenda of the elites? What can one person, and where do the elites seem to be most vulnerable from your perspective? Well, I think that, well, first of all, I, I you know, because I lived with them, for, unfortunately, for a long time as a scholarship kid, uh, I understood how that kind of entitlement distorts their personalities, um, the phenomenal lack of empathy, um, the way the elites perpetuate themselves uh, through their own networks. Um, I mean, affirmative action is alive and well for the elites, um, not for anyone else. So it was just a window into how venal and um, selfish and corrupt they were. Uh, and, uh, you know, they're very good at masking that in, in terms of their public profiles and their private lives. The Clintons exemplify this. Um, so, I mean, how do we fight the elites? Well, the elites are in a difficult position because the ideology that they shove down our throats, neoliberalism, globalization, nobody's buying it anymore, uh, the, you know, across the political spectrum. And, uh, and so they have begun a very fierce campaign against critics of – uh, unfettered capitalism or globalization and imperialism who already have been pushed to the margins of the Internet um, because they don't have a counterargument. And uh, they recognize that in order to maintain control, they will have to use the much more draconian forms of control, which is force, militarized police, uh, the revoking of basic civil liberties, 
um, censorship. That's what the abolition of net neutrality and the Google algorithms, which are targeted at left-wing sites. I mean, in uh, my, the site that I write for TruthDig, I write a column every Monday, the referrals from impressions. Impressions are if you went to Google and you typed imperialism and I had written a column on imperialism, it would come up with anything else that was recent about imperialism. Well, now it doesn't come up um, because you're not referred to that site. Um, and referrals have uh, declined from over 700,000 just on TruthDig to below 200,000 as they perfect these algorithms. Uh, same thing if you typed in Julian Assange. You're not going to be directed to sites that make a case for the defense of Julian Assange. Um, so you're already seeing these forms of censorship, um, and these critics of already, such as myself, already have pretty much been pushed out of the mainstream. Uh, and so the elites will kind of uh, – the, the mask is falling off of the elites. And the kind of kinds of violence that are that's familiar to people who live in marginal communities, poor people of color, uh, will become more familiar to the wider society. Uh, the kind of violence that was employed against the water protectors at Standing Rock, for example. So these were nonviolent, indigenous-led protesters uh, who were attacked with police dogs, who were beaten who were sprayed in sub-freezing temperatures with water cannons laced with pepper spray, who were constantly infiltrated and uh, surveilled, um, seven of, 700 of whom were arrested, uh, and of course eventually the encampment was shut down. So uh, that, that's a window into the kind of world that is coming. Jeez, it's very, it's, you know, I read your articles, every time they come up I read them, and it's sobering, but I want to know the truth. I want to face it. And I, I feel a lot of people are just continuing to want to live in that fantasy reality until everything comes crashing down. Chris, one thing I really, another thing I really admire and respect about you is that you talk about how you and your family are vegan, that you do it, I guess, because, I mean, we, a number of reasons, maybe it's because how factory farming is having a substantial negative impact on our environment. You talk a lot about how the world is destroying itself, that we're going, we're getting more increasing um, global warming. When you look at the corporate state, these corporations that are destroying the earth, do you find that it goes well beyond global warming, that the long-term ramifications of them pillaging the earth are going to have other effects that go well beyond global warming, other environmental effects? Well, sure. I mean, the mathematical models that run from that have been run on uh, on a planet that can't halt or curb carbon emissions are quite frightening. I mean, 70% die-off or complete die-off of the human species. And one of the reasons that climate scientists keep warning about raising global temperatures beyond 2% Celsius is that uh, it creates feedback loops, and they know – uh, how those feedback loops, because they've studied them on other planets like Venus, which where the temperature is 800 degrees, which once had water, uh, where it rains sulfuric acid. So uh, there's nothing left anymore to halt the assault by the fossil fuel industry 
against the planet uh, with no meaningful mechanisms within government. I mean, even the Paris Climate Accords, I mean, the, the value of the accords is they recognize the reality of climate change, but they really didn't do much to curb it. Um, you know, the, these enforcements were all voluntary, uh, and we don't have any time left. I mean, the, every climate change report that comes out is is quite clear in, in terms of its subtext, which is that things are deteriorating far faster than we thought. In fact, the previous reports have been too optimistic. So uh, just on the issue of climate change, uh, um, the, the window by which we are going to uh, protect ourselves is closing very, very rapidly. And these corporations, uh, I mean, in fact, of course, under the Trump administration, whatever tepid controls were there are being rolled back. Public lands are being open for exploration. Um, so, again, it's a kind of unplugging from the reality around us, a, a refusal to uh, see the world as it is and respond. And we're all kind of mesmerized by these electronic hallucinations, which is just endless entertainment and trivia and celebrity gossip and reality television, political reporting, you know, porn stars and porn stars lawyers who want to run for president. And, you know, I mean, it, it, it is kind of like the end of Rome where everybody trotted off to the arena to watch the spectacle and, and the walls were crumbling around them. God. And speaking of porn, I remember reading in this Empire of Illusion. Is it Empire of Illusion or the world? Empire of Illusion. Empire of yeah, Illusion, yeah. we were no, talking Empire about the, the porn industry. And I was just so sick, I thought it was sickening, how porn is no longer just, you know, you have some cheeky music and something happens, but it's very violent. So Yeah, it's violent. Why yeah. is it, well, I'm just, why do you, is your perspective, why do you think it's gotten violent? And what is the long term ramification of a culture that entertains itself by watching women being you know, sexually abused in that particular way because I think about that and I think about, okay, well, there's the Me Too movement and, okay, this is great, but what about – why don't they apply that to the porn industry? I mean if women are being violently assaulted like that, I just don't understand why there's such a disconnect. Why can't those two come Well, because porn has to keep pushing the edges to raise the excitement level. So what was considered gonzo porn a while ago is now mainstream porn, oh. and I interviewed women in the porn industry, and they're you – know, the, the physical abuse is not – uh, simulated. It's real. I mean, they're black and blue. They are constantly going in for reconstructive surgery to fix vaginal and anal tears. They're, uh, I mean, when I first started interviewing them, it was clear they had PTSD as somebody who suffered from it. So, uh, again, that is part of the commodification of everything around you, that uh, in unfettered, unregulated capitalism, human beings become commodities, in this case, women and girls, that you exploit uh, for until exhaustion or collapse. It, it's all it's all fit with a society that's lost the capacity for the sacred. Nothing has an intrinsic value. Um, everything is e even if you destroy it. Its only value is its ability to generate wealth, um, and that's as true for people as it is true for water uh, or the earth or you know the the biosphere itself. Uh, and that, that those are all indications of a society that uh, uh, is, in essence, committing an act of collective self-annihilation. Chris, one of your books that had a profound impact on me, I'd say just about every one of your books has an impact on me in some which way, shape, or form. It opens my mind and really 
helps me to come to a grasp of reality that's happening. I feel like you're one of the few people out there that's actually putting the truth out there. But it was the book you wrote about war. And in our country, U.S., people are all about the troops, are all about supporting the troops, yet few know their constitutional rights that these troops are apparently dying for. But they don't seem upset with the idea that, you know, America is constantly at war. I mean, what are two or three things that you wish people in this country knew about war that would maybe change their perspective and not be so, you know, excited to go to war and support these wars? Well, you're, you're talking about my first book, War is a Force That yeah. Gives Us Meaning. Well, everything we know about war is a lie. It's a myth. Um, it, it uh, you know, the whole kind of false heroic narrative. We saw it, you know, the, 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 the creation of this narrative with the Jessica Lynch and immediately after Pat Tillman was killed, they created a fictitious narrative um, because that's how they sell it. Um, it's a business. I mean, the only reason we're still 17 years later in Afghanistan is not because we're winning the war. In fact, the Taliban's winning the war. They Taliban controls more territory now than they did when we went in, but because Raytheon and Eric Prince and uh, Halliburton and Northrop Grumman are making a killing. Um, it's a business. War has always been a business. Uh, the war is not good. It's probably the greatest strategic blunder in American history, actually, in terms of what we've done to the Middle East. Uh, we've uh, wasted trillions of dollars. I mean, there are different numbers, four, seven, I don't know, trillions of dollars, which we desperately needed to invest with in, in terms of our own infrastructure and our own country. Um, and uh, we've enraged most of the Muslim world. Um, yeah, it's, so the public perception of war, which is disseminated by government, by politicians like John McCain, by Hollywood, bears zero resemblance to the reality of war. And I speak as someone who spent 20 years as a war correspondent, and I wrote that book out of my own experiences to attempt to uh, deflate the myth of war and, and show what war really is. Absolutely horrible. One of the quotes that I love of yours that I read on a regular basis, and the quote is, it is better to be an outcast, a stranger in one's own country, than to be an outcast for oneself. It is better to see what is about to befall us than to resist, than to retreat into the fantasies embraced by a nation of the blind. Why do you believe that people should seek the truth within themselves, seek the truth about their reality, regardless of what the ramifications of feeling and experiencing that truth is? Um, well, because you, um, when, when you conduct economic foreign policy based on a myth, then you lead yourself into a quagmire from which you can't extract yourself. And that's what happened with the invasion of Iraq. We we believed that, or we were told, and I think probably the people in the Bush White House believed that democracy would be implanted in Baghdad and spread outwards across the Middle East, that we would be greeted as liberators, that the oil revenue would pay for the reconstruction. It was all, for those of us, I spent seven years in the Middle East, I was the Middle East Bureau Chief for the New York Times, we all, those of us who are Arabists, and I speak Arabic, who came out of the region realized that this was a non-reality-based belief system. Um, 
but it was very hard after 9-11 to have our voices heard. And so we made uh, decisions based on our myths of our own creation, and now we're paying for it. That's why it's essential to grasp and understand reality, yeah. Chris, we just have one final question for you, and that question is this. What is your perspective on spirituality? What is your faith? Where do you, what do you believe that we are here for? What do, you, what do you believe your purpose in life is? Well, I once asked Daniel Berrigan how he defined faith, and he said it's the belief that the good draws to it the good. Even if empirically everything around us seems to refute that belief. Uh, and I think that's right. I think that when we carry out the good, when we speak the truth, when we stand up for the oppressed, um, when we defy radical evil, um, th there, that is our call. That is what we're meant to do. One doesn't have to come out of any kind of uh, orthodoxy to believe that. In fact, that can take secular form. I think Camus did that. Um, but it, it is, going back to the, my previous book, the idea that there is a moral imperative uh, to defending the good uh, and that, you know, a after we stand up and do what we must do, even, of course, without understanding that when you stand with the oppressed, you're often treated like the oppressed, uh, it, it, it's the belief that it goes somewhere. I mean, the Buddhists call it karma. Um, the tradition I come out of says we don't know. Uh, but that, that is why we're here. That is what we're supposed to do. Um, and and uh, it doesn't kind of matter whether it appears or it doesn't appear to have an effect. Mr. Chris Hedges, it was truly a great honor to speak with you today. Chris is, again, Chris has got a great new book called America, the Farewell Tour. We're going to put it like crazy on our site. You can also learn more about him by going to truthdig.com. You can see all of his articles. Again, I read them on a regular basis. Also, on September 18th, Mr. Hedges is celebrating a big birthday, so be sure to send him your birthday <laughs> wishes because this is a man who is putting everything on the line, risking everything to bring about you know, what's happening in the world, fighting for our freedom. Mr. Hedges, it was a great, great honor to have you with us today. Thank you for doing it. Okay, everyone, that concludes today's edition of the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. Special thanks to our terrific guest, Mr. Chris Hedges. Again, I can't tell how happy and how thankful I am that we're finally able to bring him to your attention and share his wisdom with you. And special thanks, as always, to the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show virtues, Miss Carrie O'Connor, Miss Lisa Kaza, and Miss Constance Sellis. To learn more about the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show, please go to our website at outerlimitsradio.com. Until the next time we meet, my friends, wishing upon you an abundance of peace, love, and beers. Take good care. Thank you so much for listening. Want to be heard or seen in front of millions of people? Want to be an expert on TV or radio? Goldman McCormick PR is a New York City-based public relations agency that specializes in traditional and social media placement for law, finance, media, and corporate-based clients. Goldman McCormick PR also are specialists in website development, radio show creation, press conferences, media training, and so much more. Check out GoldmanMcCormick.com for more information. GoldmanMcCormick.com.